If you'll open your Bibles this evening to the Gospel of John, John, and we're in our fifth study on the grace of God, and I believe that I'm going to spend a couple of studies on this last point. And then I'm thinking about us looking at the uh, doctrines, so-called doctrines of grace. I want to say welcome to all of you who are viewing us by the internet, who are joining us in our Tuesday evening Bible study on YouTube, Ustream and Sermon Audio Video. We are glad to have you this evening. We're going to open by reading John's Gospel, chapter 6. John's Gospel, chapter 6, on his fifth study of grace. John, chapter 6, a very well-known verse, verse 37. John, chapter 6, and verse 37. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father, we are met here this evening in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we trust for his glory, to learn more of your amazing grace toward fallen sinners. We thank you for your great salvation. We thank you for your word by which we are instructed, by which we are rebuked, by which we are corrected, and through which we learn and grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we trust in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask you to bless us, to illuminate us this evening as we study, and we ask it for the sake of Christ our Lord, for his sake. Amen. I have taken uh, the word grace, the English word grace, and made an acrostic out of it. The G is goodness, the R is righteousness, the A is atonement, C is covenant, and tonight we're going to look at the E, E in grace. What we've learned is that God is good, but he is also righteous. And his righteousness holds back his goodness until his righteousness is satisfied. His righteousness is set forth in his holy law, and the law is a reflection of the character of God himself. We know that we cannot, in any sense, keep uh, the law, because the law demands not only external, overt obedience, but inward obedience, and the law commands Joy, joyful obedience, not just obedience, but obedience with the right attitude. So it's obedience with word, in thought, and in deed. Now, why is it that we can't keep the law? This is going to be part of the burden of this evening's study. Why is it 
that we cannot, in any sense, keep the law. When you keep the law, it's not only word, thought, and deed, but it is perpetually. And of course, we start out being born in sin. Psalm 51, David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Years ago, when we had the Christian school here, I taught the boys and girls uh, each morning. We would have about a 20-minute study. Uh, all of them gathered together in our little auditorium in our old church building. And uh, I taught them one from Psalm 51, where David said, In sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51 is generally thought by the scholars to be uh, David's psalm of confession after his affair that he had with Bathsheba. And he not only uh, went with Bathsheba, but he had her husband Uriah killed in battle. And when the Lord dealt with him by sending his friend Nathan to him, David was smitten uh, in his heart and he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, and the Lord has put away thy sin. Nevertheless, he said, the chastening hand of God is going to be on you. And it's going to come on you from within your own family. So we know about all the problems that David had. He had tr trouble with his sons. One son, Absalom. And uh, Absalom killed another of his sons. And he had... Uh, problems within his family. So Psalm 51 is thought to be his, uh, his uh, psalm of confession. Well, I was teaching on that, and there was a little girl in our, in our group of boys and girls. Her name was Kelly. I'm going to be calling Kelly, by the way. She lives over here now right out of College Grove. And her first husband died years ago. And I'm going to be contacting her, see if I can get her to come back over to Grace Church. Well, I was teaching on in sin did my mother conceive me. And Kelly was a smart, smart little girl. Her mom and dad went to another church. Uh, uh, in fact, they, I think they went to the Church of Christ. And her dad was a teacher in the Church of Christ, in a Church of Christ. And so... Uh, in the Sunday school class in that particular Church of Christ, uh, the Sunday school teacher was talking about uh, people being born basically in the same state that Adam was in before he sinned. I don't know if you've ever heard of all of these things. Um, maybe we can deal with some of these theologically in this latter study that I want to have when we get through talking about grace. But the, uh, this particular teacher said that each person is born kind of in a state of neutrality and that you decide for yourself about sin and there's no security. You can be saved on Monday and lost on Tuesday and saved on Wednesday and lost on Thursday. And uh, so Kelly raised her hand and the teacher said, Kelly, after she explained to that, and Kelly said, well, David said... In sin did my mother conceive me, from Psalm 51. Well, after the class, the Sunday school teacher got in touch with her dad, and uh, the uh, 
the teacher was very upset and wanted to know where in the world Kelly was learning that people were born in sin. I remember years ago, we had a friend who was a dentist, and he had the cutest little girl, and we were talking. He wanted to study the book of Romans, and we studied Romans, and he also went to the Church of Christ, and he's a good friend of ours. But when we started talking about this thing of sin, he looked at his little girl, and he said to Lynn, you mean to tell me that she's a sinner? And we said, yes, she's a sinner. She's born in sin. You don't become a sinner when you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. And you are born a sinner because you inherited it from your mom and dad, and they inherited it from their mom and dad, and it goes all the way back to Adam. Well, I won't go back into the story anymore, but it caused a lot of problems in that particular family uh, because Kelly believed that men were born in sin. Now, I want you to turn... You know these passages. We could look at Psalm 51, but let's go now to Ephesians chapter 2. The question is, why is it that we can't keep the law? God is good, but his goodness will not be, ex be shown at the expense of his righteousness. We are unrighteous. The holy law is, sets forth the righteousness of God, and the law is a reflection of the character of God. And so uh, we can't keep it in word, in thought, and in deed. And think about this now. If you could keep it, as I'll point out to you in a little while, if you could keep it, there is a possibility that Christ would have died in vain that God would have sent his son into the world for people who, after all, maybe could save themselves. The scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 1, that God has made us alive. I don't know what translation you have. This King James Version says, You hath he quickened, which means give life, made alive, who were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. The question again, why can't we keep the law? Now Paul said in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, let's turn over to Romans 7, 7. Why should I quote these to you? I'll let you see, I'll let you see them for yourself. Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. Paul says in Romans 7, 7, is the law sin? God forbid, I had not known sin, but by the law. I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. How do you know when you run a red light? Well, because the light's red. <laughs> you know you're running the red light when you run the light, and it's red. And I've, I've run a number of red lights uh, in my life, and when I run a red light, I know that I'm wrong. I know I'm running the red light. I know you're not supposed to run the red light. Of course, I have all my excuses, but that doesn't excuse me any more than people making up excuses before God. Paul says here that it is the law that teaches us how, by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God confronting us with the law, tells us that we're sinners. He says, without the law, sin 
was dead. Look at verse 8. Sin, taking occasion by the commandment, worked in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. He goes on to say, I was alive without the law once. Verse 9. What does he mean by that? Well, he was a Jew, right? He was a self-righteous Jew. And what he means is, I thought that I was fine with God. I thought I was alive. I thought I was spiritually alive. I was doing his will. I was in a right relationship with him. You know, it is Paul who held the coats of men who stoned the deacon, the Christian deacon, Stephen, to death. It's in the book of Acts. Paul is the one who held their coats while they stoned Stephen to death. And God, no doubt in my mind, that God used Stephen's testimony by the Spirit of God to pierce the heart of Saul, whom we know as Paul the Apostle. So he says, at one time I thought I was alive, but I was dead in sin, and I didn't know until that law opened up to me, until I began to understand the full ramification of the law, I didn't realize what a sinner I was. And by the way, when you read the epistles of Paul, you find that the older he got, the more of a sinner he saw himself to be. You don't get better in your estimation of yourself as you get older. You get worse in your estimation of yourself. When we are young, especially when we're young in the Lord, we don't know a lot about ourselves. And the Lord begins to teach us as we get in into to some age and get some years in our lives. And before you know it, we're saying what Paul said, that in me that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. Nothing. So we were, why can't we keep the law? Well, he says, sin was dead, but when the law came, when the law came, used by God, and began to work in me, concupiscence, he says, once it's extreme lust, that's verse, verse 8. Then he says in verse 9, the last part of the verse, he said, sin revived. Sin came alive. It had been dead to me. It was dead. I thought I was doing fine. I thought when I was uh, putting Christians in prison and persecuting Christians, I thought that was the will of God. I was determined to stamp out all of these believers in Jesus as Messiah. But he said, when the commandment came in power, when I saw what, it, what God is really saying in his law, sin revived. And what happened to you, Paul? Last part of verse 9. I died. Well, see, I was already dead, but I didn't know I was dead. We used to say in music, when somebody had already run the gamut, they've already had their time of popularity and all of that, and they just won't let go of it. They just let it go. We say, well, he's dead, but he just won't roll over. And that's the way Paul was. Paul thought he was doing God's will. He thought he was full of zeal. Uh, but he was dead. And when that sin revived, he said, I died. Look at verse 10. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be to death. That is the commandment that I thought, if I kept it, I would have life. I found 
that it brought death to me. It brought death to my mind, death to my heart, and I saw that I was dead in trespasses and sins. Well, that answers the question from Ephesians chapter 2. Why would God have to make us alive if we're not dead? So he says in Ephesians 2, And you hath he quickened, you hath he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. So the answer to the question, why can't we keep the law as we are, as we come into this world? And the answer is because we're dead spiritually. We're dead in trespasses and sins. How is it that we're dead in trespasses and sins? We were born in sin. In sin did our mothers conceive us. Our mothers were sinners, and their mothers were sinners, and their dads were sinners. And the Lord Jesus said, flesh and blood, he says flesh produces what? What does flesh produce? Flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit, he says. Now, the word dead, how sick were we? Trying to labor this point now about why we can't save ourselves by what we do. We were dead. We were dead. Well, how dead were we? People say, I'm half dead. Well, dead is dead all the way. As I mentioned this past Sunday, the little boy said, I had a little dog named Rover, and when he died, he died all over. Death is complete. It's from the crown of the head to the soles of the feet. Now, the Latin word mort, M-O-R-T, mort, is the word for death. What's a mortuary? Well, you know what a mortuary is. What is a mortal? A mortal is one whom death will one day claim. What is a, a mortician? Well, a mortician is, uh, has a job that's related uh, to death, embalm and bury the dead. Uh, what do you mean when you say, well, when I saw him, I was mortified? That means I was scared to death. <laughs> I was so embarrassed and I was so ashamed or whatever, I felt like dying because I was mortified. But that all comes from this Latin term, mort, M-O-R-T. Now, in the Greek, we have the word necro. We have a necropolis. A necropolis is a city of death or a large cemetery. Uh, we have uh, necropsy, an examination of the body after death. So I ask again, how dead were we? Were we half dead? Well, lo the Lord told Adam that in the day he partook of the fruit of the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden, that he would die. We know that Adam did not die immediately physically. So he died spiritually. What does that mean? It means that by disobeying God, he was separated from God. He was dead to God. He had no relationship whatsoever to God spiritually. He was separated, dead toward God, and the fruit of that is he was prone toward evil. He was prone toward disobedience. We don't have to teach our children about doing wrong. We have to teach them about doing right. They do wrong quite naturally. 
You put a toy in there with four or five kids and they will scratch each other's eyes out over their toy. Mine. They'll do that. And they'll cry and cry and cry when nothing's wrong with them until they get their way. We have to teach children to do right. Don't have to teach them to do wrong. They do wrong by nature. Now, Adam, when he sinned, separated himself from God, was prone toward evil, prone toward disobedience, and we describe this spiritual state of man as depravity. Depravity is the word we use. Another word that comes from the Latin, it means to be crooked. Something that's depraved is something that's crooked, bent away from that which is straight and which is right. So depravity, by that we mean the innate corruption in human nature due to the sin of Adam, the, what many theologians call the original sin. Now, I believe the original sin was with Lucifer. Lucifer was the original sinner, and he tempted man to sin, but I know what they mean by that. So every person that's born in this world, let's turn to the Gospel of John again, chapter 8. We've already read chapter 6, verse 37. Let's look in John's Gospel, chapter 8. And let's see what the Lord Jesus says here. Every person born into this world, we're trying to find out what it means when we say we're sinners, we're dead in sin, we're separated from God, we have a proneness to do evil. And Jesus said, every person born into this world that sins is enslaved to the service of sin. John's Gospel, chapter 8, this is the famous chapter where he says, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free and so on. And he says here in verse 34, John chapter 8 and verse 34, I say unto you, whosoever commits sin is the servant. Now, if you have servant in your Bible, that's not nearly as severe as the word doulos, and it means slave. Whoever commits sin is the slave. It's like if you get a shot of back bad something in your body, then it takes over. It takes over your body. And so whoever commits sin is the doulos, the bond slave of sin. Now, you know what? Doulos means, it means one who gives himself or herself over to the will and service of another. That's what it is to be a slave. A slave is someone who gives himself or herself over to the will and the service of another. So here's the bottom line. Either men are dead in sin or they're not. There's no... There's no halfway ground here. If we're going to believe the Bible, and the Bible says dead, it means dead. Either we're dead in sin or we're not dead in sin. So we go a little further than the word depravity and we attach the word total to it. Total depravity. Total depravity means every part of the faculty of man is bent, that is depraved, toward sin. 
Men and women and boys and girls are not born loving God, not born wanting His will, but loving themselves and wanting their own will to be done. All right. Now, if men and women and boys and girls are dead in sin, if they are separated from God, if they have no desire, we all know what Romans 3 says, don't we? Let me read it to you again, some of the verses in Romans 3. Everybody should know that here in this place. In Romans chapter 3, he says in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understand, verse 11. There's none that seek after God. Now look at those three things. The fruit of righteous. If you're not righteous, what's the way you say that? How do you say you add un to it? Unrighteous. You can't talk about un. You can't talk about being a sinner unless you talk about righteousness. So it's, if you're not righteous, you are unrighteous. If you're not worthy, you are unworthy. So he says there's none righteous, and the fruit of that is there's none that understand. They don't have any spiritual understanding. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness under him, neither can he understand them, says Paul. There's none that understand. And then he says, as a result of not understanding, nobody seeks God. Nobody seeks God. Not righteous. Don't understand. Don't understand who God is. Don't understand who I am. Don't understand the great gulf between me and God. Don't understand the awful price that I'm going to have to pay if I stay in that condition. And yet I'm not seeking God. Okay? Well, which way did we go? Well, he says in the next verse, verse 12, they've all gone, they've all gone out of the way. Well, what does that mean? They've gone out of the way of God. Every one of us, like sheep, has turned to his own way. Isaiah 53, they are together become unprofitable of no profit to God in that state. There's none that doeth good, that is good in the sight of God, no, not one. He goes on, he gives an awful description of man. This is all the fruit of sin. So here's what I'm asking. If men are dead toward God, how can they be saved? If goodness needs righteousness, and righteousness needs atonement. That's what we've learned so far. God is good, but he's not going to show his goodness at the expense of his righteousness. So his righteousness has to be satisfied. And how is his righteousness satisfied? By an atonement. And then that was uh, planned in a, in a covenant. That's G-R-A-C. So if men are dead, how can they be saved? If goodness needs righteousness and righteousness needs atonement. Okay, what did the atonement do? As we learned, the atonement satisfies righteousness so that the goodness of God can be shown in reconciliation. But if men are dead, if men are dead toward God, what good did the death of Christ do? Now let me ask you a question. Is faith saving faith? Is saving faith a gift of God or is it something that every man possesses that he just simply needs to turn loose of? 
Well, the Bible says it is a gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Is repentance a gift of God? Repentance is a gift of God. It said in the book of Acts, when the Jews found out that God was saving some Gentiles, they said, Then hath God granted unto the Gentiles repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. How about perseverance? How about continuing in the faith? Well, what is eternal life? Do we have eternal life or do we have temporary life? Well, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Now, what Jesus said? If you have life you can lose, you don't have eternal life. You have temporary life, but it couldn't possibly be eternal life. So here's what I'm asking you. The answer to the question, <laughs> what did the death of Christ do? The answer can only be found in the extent or the purpose of the atonement. Now, was the death of Christ sufficient? That is, did Christ pay all that was owed? Did Christ satisfy all of the demands of God and his holy law? Now, if he did, if we agree that when Christ died, he was offering himself as an atonement. And I've said this so many times that all of you should have memorized it by now. A-T at O-N-E one M-E-N-T meant at one meant two people or two parties are separated, separated. Someone has to bring them together. That's what the atonement is. What did death do? What did, when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, what did it do? separated us from God. So according to Romans chapter 5, Jesus is the atonement. He's the one that reconciles. He's the one that brings us back to God because his righteousness is charged to the account of his people so that they are righteous in the sight of God and God can show his goodness to them. Are you following me now? Everybody following me okay? Now, if men are dead in sin so that they don't seek God, as we just read in Romans chapter 3, they don't understand how can anybody be saved? Well, we have to talk about the purpose behind the death of Christ, the purpose behind the atoning death of Christ. We have to wrestle with the purpose behind the atonement, and we have to ask this question, for whom did Christ die? For whom did Christ die? Now see if you can follow me here. If Jesus died for all of the sins of all of the world, and his death is an atonement, now you have to accept that. If you don't think his death is an atonement, then you, you, I'm wasting my breath. Okay? 
But if his death is an atonement, if he died in order to satisfy the judgment, the holy law of God, was he successful or was he not successful? All right, if he were successful, then we have to ask these questions. Did he die for all of the sins of all the world? If he died for all of the sins of all the world and his death was an atoning death, all the world will be saved. Can you find me? You follow me there? If he died for all of the sins of all of the world, all of the world will be saved if his death was an atoning death. If his death is the reconciliation, that's the way it's uh, translated in Romans 5. The reconciliation, the way it should be translated. In King James, it's translated atonement, but it is the word for reconciliation, bringing us back to God. All right, if Jesus died for all the sins of all the world, then all the world will be saved. All right, number two, if Jesus died for most of the sins of all of the world, no one will be saved. If he takes the football and, 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 and runs it down to the 99-yard line and then he tosses it off to you and you've got to run over and make the touchdown, that you don't owe all of the glory and all of the praise to Christ alone. It's me and Jesus. Tom T. Hall wrote a song called Me and Jesus Got a Good Thing Going. Me and Jesus got it all worked out. Me and Jesus got a good thing going. We don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. Well, the payment that was made by Christ was a payment that was demanded from us, and we can't meet it. And if Christ didn't die an atoning death and take care of our sins, none of us are going to ever see the portals of glory. So let me ask again. If Jesus died for all of the sins of all of the world, all of the world must be saved. If Jesus died for most of the sins of all of the world, no one will be saved. If Jesus died for all of the sins of some of the world, those for whom he died will be saved. Now let me ask you this question. When I say some of the world, the Bible, I've already, I took uh, five or ten minutes a couple of weeks ago and showed you that a number that no man can number will be saved. Of every kindred, tribe, nation, tongue, a number that no man can number will be saved. That probably includes also infants and uh, the uh, uh, people who Never really have a good mind and all of that thing. I don't know. We just leave those with the Lord. But if those for whom Christ died will be saved. All right, now I want you to listen to me for just a minute because this is important. I want you to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 17 now. Gospel of John, chapter 17. This is important, and I'll deal with this more detail in a later study. Obviously, I am headed toward what we call the doctrine of election. God does not dwell in time. He dwells in eternity, doesn't he? So therefore, whatever the Lord has done, 
It's, it's already done as far as his purpose is concerned. It's past tense or present tense or whatever, because he doesn't live in time. This doctrine sometimes worries us because we are gauging God in time. And he doesn't live in time. He lives in eternity. And we know that Abraham asked him when he said he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The God, he will do right. Now, what was the text that we read tonight when we began? John 6, verse what? 37. <laughs> Y'all remember that. John 6, 37. What does it say? First it says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. Then it says, and everyone that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. So if you can't enter into the first part of that, you can enter into the second part. If you have problems with all that the Father gives me, when did the Father give him some people? He gave him people before the foundation of the world. But that's timely language. That's for us to understand. That's what we call accommodating language. When we talk about before the foundation of the world, the creation of the world, the history of the world, after the world, that's accommodating language for us. It just means that from all eternity, God already determined the end from the beginning. Isn't that what Jeremiah said? He declared the end from the beginning. And you're just going to have to trust him. You have to trust him. That's the point. We want to bring God down to our understanding of things and say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, it's impossible for the holy God to do anything that's unfair. Everything he does is absolutely just. And that's what fair means. You want God to be fair with you, you want him to be just with you. So whatever God does is right, and he doesn't do it because it's right. It's right because he does it. You see, there can't be a standard outside of God that he obeys. The Lord doesn't say, I always do right because there's a standard over here. No, he is a standard unto himself. Okay? This is something, of course, that we have difficulty dealing with. So let me ask you this. If Jesus died an atoning death, you only have three possibilities. Now, before I say these things again that I've already said, I know I'm repeating myself, but I'm doing that on purpose. Let me ask you this. Israel had a high priest. They had many priests, but they had a high priest. Is that right? Okay, you know, two or three weeks ago, I mentioned to you about Yom Kippur, and that was the day of what? The day of atonement. The day of atonement was just celebrated by the Jews September 24th and 25th. Yom Kippur. The high priest could go into the Holy of Holies only one day a year. And that was on the day of Yom Kippur. Okay? When he went into the Holy of Holies and he went in there before God, who was he making an atonement for? All of the world? Now, he was representing a certain people. He was representing the nation of Israel. He is a picture and a type 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus went into, when he went to the cross and he went into the Holy of Holies and according to the book of Hebrews with his own blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, he went in there for his people. Remember the angel said to Joseph, when, when Mary was pregnant with Jesus, you're going to call his name Jesus, Joseph, for he shall save his people from their sins. You shall call him Jehovah is salvation. That's what Jesus means. You call him Jehovah is salvation because he is going to do his best. He's going to do his best. He's going to do his dead level best. He's going to try real hard. No, it doesn't say that. It says he shall save who? His people. Well, now, does his people mean the Jews only? No. That's why in the Gospel of John, you have this phrase, all the world everywhere. All the world means not just a local nation, but people all over the world and in every generation. So, if Jesus died for all of the sins of all of the world, all of the world would be saved. If Jesus died for most of the sins of all of the world, nobody will be saved. If Jesus died for all of the sin of something less than every person in the world, those for whom he died will be saved. Again, for whom did the high priest intercede? Everybody? No, he, he interceded for a certain people that he represented. Okay? Now, in John chapter 17, this is called the high priestly prayer of Christ. We are allowed to see the Lord Jesus talking to his Father in heaven in John chapter 17. This is the Lord's Prayer. The prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, that's the model prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, so on. That's the model prayer. It gives you kind of a little outline to follow when you're praying. It's the things you can touch on and mention. But this is the high priestly prayer in John 17. Now I want you to look at verse 9. Jesus said, speaking of his people and speaking specifically of his disciples, he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. But I pray for those which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Now, does it seem right to you that Jesus would die for the whole world but not pray for the whole world? Does that seem right to you? It doesn't seem to me. He said, I do not pray for the world. I do pray for those which thou hast given me. Would he pray for the world if he didn't come to save the world. I believe he would. I believe he would pray for the world if he came to save the world. Okay? So, here's the next question. Does the Lord save, or does the Lord enable men to save themselves? Does the Lord save, or does he just make it possible for us to be saved? Does he just make us savable? Well, if he makes it only possible for us to be saved, it's possible that you won't be saved. If he makes it possible for anybody to be saved, and I'll open up this more next time. If he makes it possible 
then nothing he did on the cross is a certainty. Nothing is a certainty. Nothing is certain. God himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, has got to wait and see what we're going to do. Is faith a gift? Ephesians 2.8 says it is. Is repentance a gift? Can a dead man change his heart? Jeremiah 13.23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then may you also do good that are accustomed to do evil. Is it good to come to Jesus? Is it good to believe on Christ? Is it good to turn from your sins? Is it good to believe the Lord? All of those good things are gifts of God purchased for his people by Christ in his atoning death. In other words, all that is necessary to be saved, faith, repentance, security, all of these things were purchased by the Son for those given to him by the Father. All right, let's turn to John chapter 10. I don't know if I'll be able to finish tonight, but let's, let's turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and verse 11 I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the world. No, he gives his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known of mine. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I am known of mine. Verse 15, as the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I hope to bring them. No, I must bring. That's a divine must. Like ye must be born again. That's a divine must. I must needs go through Samaria, he said, when he met the woman at the well. And he says here, I must bring them because it's according to the divine purpose. And they shall hear my voice. And there will be one fold, and there will be one shepherd. All right, now, they said, listen, Jesus, the ones that didn't believe in him, they said, if you are the Messiah, if you're the Christ, why don't you tell us plainly? Why don't you tell us plainly? Look in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 24. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long do you make us to doubt if you're the Christ? Tell us plainly. Jesus said in verse 25, I told you. I told you. And you believe not. Not only did I tell you, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. When's the last time you've seen somebody raise the dead? When's the last time you've seen uh, somebody give sight to a blind man? Those works tell you who I am. But why is it that you don't believe? That's what it says, verse 26. You believe not because you are not of my sheep. Now notice, he did not say you are not of my sheep because you don't believe. He said you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. What do you mean, Jesus? Here's what I mean, verse 27. My sheep will hear my voice. To hear him means to believe him. They will hear me. They will believe me. I know them, and they will follow me. And I will give unto them, verse 8, 28, I will give unto them 
a life if they can keep it. I'll give them life if they can keep it. No, I'll give them eternal life and they shall never. And that is a double negative. They shall never, never, no, never under any circumstance, by any means whatsoever, they shall never, there's nothing you can come up with that will ever cause them to perish and nobody will ever be able to pluck them out of my hand and my father gave them me, verse 29, and he's greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. To get to me, you got to open the hand of God and in the hand of God is the hand of Christ and you got to open the hand of Christ to get to me. That's how secure you are. If you're saved by him. If you saved yourself, I don't have any good news for you. They will never perish. So who, who gives us faith to believe? Who gives us repentance? When we fall, when we stumble, when we bumble, who gives us the grace to get back up and go on? The Lord does. Who secures us? Who calls us to faith? He calls us to faith by His Spirit. Now, let's go back to John 6, and I'll have to close. This is the first time that I haven't been able to finish the notes that I had for you, but I've deliberately hammered on some things to set you up for where we're going in the E of grace. Let's go back and let's look at verse 37 again. All that the Father gives me. How are you going to know them? They'll come to me. All that the Father gives me, they will come to me. Then the second part of the verse, if you didn't have the first part, him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. All right, I'm going to leave you tonight with a quote from a preacher that died in 1892. You can have a little bit more confidence in preachers that are already dead. This is Charles Spurgeon. And we're going to get more into this in the next couple of studies. I promise you I won't spin this out as much as I have Joseph. <laughs> but it's necessary for us to look at a few more things. Here's what Spurgeon said. You remember when I said if Jesus died an atoning death, then whoever he died for must be saved. They'll be kept. They'll be secured. They'll be brought to faith. They'll be granted repentance. They'll be saved. Right? If you die for the whole world, the whole world has to be saved. Now, you'd be surprised at how universal atonement, how popular it's becoming today. Universal atonement. Some people even say the devil will be converted. I guess the lake of fire will be empty. The scripture says he made the lake of fire for the devil and his angels. Here's what Spurgeon said. We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made a satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. Now our reply to this is, on the other hand, our opponents are the ones who are limiting the atonement. We do not. They say Christ died for all men. So ask them what they mean by that. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? 
But they say, no, certainly not. So we asked him the next question. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? The answer to this, they say, is no. They are obliged to admit this if they are consistent. They say, no, Christ has died that any man may be saved if, and then they follow that with certain conditions of salvation. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why you, my friends, you say that Christ did not die so as to infallibly secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon when you say we limit Christ's death. We say, no, my dear sir, it is you that limit it. We say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number, who through the death of Christ not only may be saved, but are saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. Now, I'm going to talk to you about this next week. Here's what I'm going to talk to you about. Is the atoning work of Christ limited? It is limited, but it either has to be limited by the will of man or by the will of God. But it is limited. And it's the perspective that we take. Is it limited by the will of man or is it limited by the will of God? May the Lord add his blessings to his word. Our Father, we call upon you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for giving us this time together this evening. And we pray that you will help us to think on these things as we consider the great and wonderful and magnificent purpose and plan of the Father when he sent his Son into the world. He sent him into the world to save his people from their sins. And Father, let us not worry ourselves about who his people are when we are told that whosoever comes to Christ, whosoever believes on Christ, may have eternal life. And you have said this in one verse, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. We thank you for this great salvation that is so simple that even a child may not err therein. We pray tonight for Brother Lee, for Brother Ed, uh, for Jan, uh, for Danny Shanks, for these others that are sick. Father, that you'll raise them up and uh, heal them once again. We ask all of these blessings in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.